The Spin-Off Podcast Network. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and, of course, past performance does not guarantee future returns. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. Hi to my Tenakoto Kato. Welcome to Pod Stars uh, with Toby, Annabelle, and Ben. This episode is being simulcast across a range of uh, different pod channels, including uh, AltaVista and Live Journal. We are going to dedicate most of the podcast to Prince Philip, who died. Yep. The 45 minutes of silence. What we'll do is we'll do 45 minutes of silence, but then we'll take them out in the edit. That was good. Whew. Um, the. Parliament of New Zealand is meeting today on Tuesday the... 13th? 13th? Tuesday the 13th. Friday, uh, Tuesday the 13th. That's <laughs> the fateful Tuesday the 13th. Yeah, an inauspicious day, the, the Ides. Is it the Ides? Is, is it? it? The 15th. Mm. Uh, mm. Right in. I have no idea what we're talking about. <laughs> it's, um, it's Ben's classical background. Uh. He loves a bit of Ides. The elected parliamentarians of New Zealand... A gathering today on Tuesday the 13th of April, this afternoon, for a normal sitting day of Parliament. And then they're going to do tributes to the Duke of Edinburgh. Respectful vibes. And then they're going to go for the day, (laughs) which I thought is like, I mean, cool. Like, I mean, good, do the tributes. But then they're just packing up and leaving. Like, I don't know, are they going to go home and watch royal documentaries all day or... What? Maybe they could just go and then come back again and start over. It just seems like a bit of a waste of a sitting day. Just a quiet period of mourning for okay. them, maybe. I feel like the only apt tribute would be to do a really long general debate, just full of zingers. <laughs> full of gaps. <laughs> that would be, and you get extra points for, you know, allusions to some of old jukies. You, you, mm. you say gaffs, I say confirmed kills. Mm. Like, <laughs> mm. Prince Philip would have been an amazing tweeter in the 1950s. Oh, my God. He would have been just the, the apex poster. Handsome or not handsome? Uh, I think he was quite a good-looking man by royal mm. standards. The mm. funny thing is that um, on, on Friday night... So I, I watched the first series of The Crown when it first came out, mm. and then once I realised John Lithgow wasn't going to be in the second series, I didn't bother with the second series. Mm. But on Friday night, I was like, I'll oh, have a look, started watching, loved it, and I was three episodes in, and news alert comes through. Wow. So I basically killed Philip just with my my viewing. <laughs> with, your remo- <laughs> with your remote. Yeah. Amazing, the powers. Mm. The um, um, he's, a, he's, a, he's a field 
admiral in the New Zealand Navy. Yeah, they've all got they've all got bits and stripes and lapels and whatnot. Don't I don't they? know how much juice he would have been. He was apparently very good in the Second World War. Mm. In, a, mm. in a naval battle in good, good, near good Sicily. Naval. Yeah. Saved a, saved a lot of lives with some cunning smokescreen diversion kind of tactic. It's pretty interesting. Um, he was definitely he was good looking when he was young. He was a bit rough towards the end. Well, but I mean, but time, time, has, it, time hasn't been <laughs> hasn't been kind to any of us. <laughs> so. To be fair, he was ninety nine. That's right. Um, well, I think we've covered off uh, the tributes to Duke of, Duke of Edinburgh. There, we'll do another uh, another ten minutes of silence. Uh, the I suppose the major political newsline of recent times was the decision to place a temporary halt, a suspension, temporary ban, call it what you like, on all arrivals from India um, after there'd been a, a kind of marked spike in um, COVID cases in India, especially in, in Mumbai. And uh, the decision was unprecedented, particularly because it uh, meant that that included New Zealand citizens and residents, and there were questions about whether, how that sat within the law, um, and it needed to be, you know, justified. Seems to be the the whatever that means. Um, big step uh, caused some concerns and ructions, including from some members of the Indian community in New Zealand. How did you think that one landed, Annabelle Lee Mather? Um, I well, as the medical expert interviewed on RNZ said it wasn't so much that it was a, smi- a spike but a constant um, increase yeah. of um, of infected people arriving and that's due to obviously the size of the population and all of that sort of stuff. Um, obviously a decision like that is never going to go down well with the communities that it affects and it's obviously going to put a lot of whānau into difficult positions, but, you know, these are unprecedented times, so I understood why why the decision was taken to put a temporary ban, because the reality is, is, I mean, as we've seen in the last couple of days, when our MIQs are overwhelmed with infectious people, it starts to, to seep out into mm. the community. The... The decision applies as of Sunday and through until I think the end of April, April 29, uh, Ben Thomas, and the case that was made was that this was buying some time to look at Mm. options and uh, ways to better manage those increased uh, number of cases coming from a particular place. So it's crucial, isn't it, that on... I mean, it, it will be it's a, it will be a crucial moment on April twenty nine or ahead of that whether they have come up with a solution or whether they just go we're just going to add another four weeks to it. At which point it starts moving away from this temporary suspension into something more substantial. Yeah, the debates about the legalities, I think, are probably the least interesting part of that announcement. I mean, a sovereign nation has the right to control its borders. There's no question about that. Um, In terms of whether it's a justified limitation, you know, sure, legally. um, There was a bit of a discussion about, you know, was this a decision motivated by racism? It was obviously a decision motivated by keeping numbers of infected people in MIQ down. I think it was certainly an easier decision to make for the Prime Minister politically 
because it was India and not the UK or the United States. Um, we've heard about, you know, the, uh, India has the vast majority of cases that are now coming into MIQ. I think the same was probably true of the United States and the United Kingdom once you put them together at the beginning of the pandemic. Um, I don't know that there was as high a rate of infection of people coming through, you know, as in the sort of the positive rate. case number wasn't yeah. as high, but yeah, it's 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 comparable for sure. Yeah, but I th- I think that what you're talking about um, in terms of that two weeks is really the crucial issue here, which is that um, well, that's the crucial issue in terms of the government sort of delivering on this policy because as we've seen in our highly iterative and ultimately largely successful response at the border, is that the government often wastes a lot of time (laughs) and says that it's going to do things like um, test frontline border workers, uh, implement regular testing, vaccinate border workers, which it ends up just not doing uh, until there's another failure and then we learn about it and then more pressure goes on. So... I think, you know, it it obviously will really depend on whether the government does take this time to actually put in place steps like, you know, MIQ over in India so that people have two weeks clear before they get on a plane. That seems to be the big problem, that moving through India to get to your plane is highly hazardous Mm. in the the current circumstances. I mean, Susie Wells made an interesting point or or, or offered a hypothesis uh, in a piece for us in which she said it could be that... The paradox is that people going to get the pre-departure test may expose the people to uh, the virus. You know, uh, the pre-departure test, of course, designed to prevent exactly what's happening, but could end up um, backfiring. I mean, there's another question, which is, you know, what is our ultimate aim um, with with the border? Is it to only select? The, the 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 best and most uninfected people to come back to New Zealand, or is it to help New Zealanders get away from these COVID-infested health yep. health sites? Yeah, um, and you know, depending on where you put the balance in terms of priorities, that'll dictate. You know, if the idea is just to select the best people to come back here who are at least likely to infect us, then we'd close off way more than just well, exactly, and exactly, and and I mean, if you don't have if you aren't a New Zealand citizen or resident or family member or have had a very high bar of other qualifying criteria, then you're not coming from anywhere. <laughs> so these are these these are you know you're absolutely right that they need to find a solution to it because I mean even though you say that you're not excited by the legal issue, there is a kind of part of that legal framework is that we allow. New Zealanders to return to their home. <laughs> but but even more than the legalities, you know, this is New Zealanders' home. Um, and one of, I think, I think we, we, we've gotten remarkably, we've gotten off remarkably lightly in terms of um, some, you know, in terms of the, the pandemic itself, in terms of the COVID, COVID ravaging the country. We basically escaped scot-free on that. Not clear what the long-term effects will be in terms of, you know, mental health, loss of education time, but probably, you know, we would hope not too bad because we didn't have particularly long lockdowns here, unlike overseas. Um, And the the economic fallout, bad, but nowhere near as bad as expected. But what has happened is that something about the New Zealand national character seems to have changed a little, which is we have become much, much more inward-looking, much more fearful, um, 
you know, xenophobia obviously is a sort of staple of the New Zealand kind of uh, psyche. But this idea of turning on New Zealanders who are overseas simply because they're not within our borders at, you know, the current time, which you see not just in terms of, you know, uh, New Zealanders over in India, but, you know, even people coming back from the US or the UK is really unsettling. I think. I'm not sure if I entirely agree with that. And I think that, you know, part of the consideration, well, one of the issues that we need to consider as part of this is that actually New Zealand is punching well above our weight in terms of the amount of people that we have coming through our MIQs per capita. I think we're five times more than Australia. And so putting some filters in place to keep it safe is not a horrendous breach of people's human rights. But more importantly, those people that work at our borders and in our MIQs, we know a lot of them are low paid, many of them on minimum wage, which also means that they're more than likely um, in living in homes where they're having to share with a large n- number of other family members. They might have li- limited access to med- medical support and facilities, all of those sorts of things. So the people who are caring for for people with COVID or uh, 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 brushing up against them, are some of our, uh, a, a number of them are quite vulnerable and we actually have to think about making sure that their workplace is as safe as possible as it possibly can be while a pandemic rages around the world. So I think that actually putting some, um, some, some limits in place to stem the flow of people in so that, they c- so that we don't infect New Zealanders who are resident here is actually not an unreasonable expectation. In terms of of India and would it have been, you know, is it more palatable because it's India and not America, I would argue that we actually have really different relationships with those countries. You don't have a huge amount of you know, New Zealanders coming back from from India or, you know, dual citizenship situations. We do have a lot of dual citizenships or or you know, flow in and out of New Zealand and India. So I actually think it would have, would have been a, a more difficult decision, but I think it's the, the the right one in terms of at least trying to figure out what we can do better to bring people home safely. One of the uh, changes to that MIQ system that's been introduced, which I think happened since we last podded, was the announcement of the Trans-Tasman bubble, which will open on on April 19. And one of the flow-on effects of that is that... um, We'll do our next podcast from Sydney, I assume. But one of the flow-on effects from that is that they... That creates this extra capacity in the system, which is a good thing. Mm. But also part of the acknowledgement of that was that they were likely to decommission various of the facilities. And I actually have a friend who is currently in um, in the Hamilton Ibis which is Classy. a flight, <laughs> and the entire hotel, she's, she, she's loving it. It's got a view of the Waikato, mm. Tainui Run, magnificent. That's a beautiful hotel. Um, and uh, But it has no, the windows don't open. There's like, the venti- you know, there's almost no ventilation, and it seems like, to me, non-expert, the kind of hotel that they are basically going to decommission, likely to decommission. Great wine list. 
great wine list. She's having a nice time. Slaps but, all of that. But um, but but you know what I mean. Like and which 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 means you know Hipkins acknowledges that there's some that they think maybe maybe not be quite right for the higher risk. And you kind of like so basically a whole lot of hotels are being run for where they know that nobody's got COVID because they've all come from a flight from Sydney. Yeah, that's, that's and right. it's I mean, sort of weird. You know, the, the travel bubble is l- ludicrously overdue. There's no particular reason that it's safer now than it was in November. Um, uh, the, 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 the other thing that we want to get on to is the, the case which I think we've touched on maybe in passing um, uh, is this the Grand Millennium Hotel security guard who's now called Case C and there's quite a long gap between Case C and Case B and uh, these are likely to be very low paid workers as you mentioned Annabelle in this case employed by a private company in this case had not had, had, had not been vaccinated had passed up two opportunities, reportedly for family reasons. Had not been tested, it seems, for quite a while either. We also learned an example of what you were talking about, Ben, in terms of this kind of playing catch-up. Really what happened was now Chris Hipkins has said that all of the information about vaccinations, I think, will be supplied uh, up up the chain, um, whereas the private companies had it before, and it's kind of it's kind of extraordinary. And it it seems to me with the it's, he's called he's called Case C because they don't have a list of all the frontline workers. <laughs> well, <laughs> I mean, is, you know, I mean, there are all Ministry sorts of, of Health desperately yeah. trying to find who this person is. It's, you know, there <laughs> part of the devol- there's the devol- devolved um, powers within the to the DHBs from the ministry and then there's also the use of contracted workers and of course we saw what happened in Melbourne you know this is this mm. this is this is not a Melbourne case luckily but what happened in Melbourne was they were private contractors that were employed by the state to do the security and it all we you know we know where, where that all end um but just thinking about the vaccination program more broadly and the sort of certain amount of sluggishness um a certain amount of sort of nebulousness around it, and I think part of part of the, there isn't a public outcry in New Zealand, and part of that I think is because people mostly feel reasonably safe, and so you're not seeing what you're seeing in some other countries with the attention on it. But I was thinking about this, and I was thinking, you know, when we way back uh, a year ago, really, when we were looking at the contact tracing systems, and there was a call by the Director General of Health, Ashley Bloomfield, for a gold standard contact tracing system. And Aisha Varel, who is now Cabinet Minister, uh, was tasked with completing this report. And it was a pretty tough, blunt, clear uh, challenge to sort some shit out, which they did. Mm. And I kind of, I mean, you know, I'm not some big city epidemiologist, but maybe we need... A gold standard vaccinations rollout, and I'm—I don't know if it's there. The stats aren't there. I mean, if, if we we just we needed vaccination Google Docs. We needed some way of well, keeping track. I think track unfortunately of that's what Canterbury DHB were using. Isn't that part of the problem? I mean, I mean, the idea that you would not know how many or who of your mm-hmm. frontline workers had been vaccinated yeah. a month into the project is—it's mind-boggling. It's—it's it's almost as if. I mean, I just can't even think of an apt analogy. It's just, it's insane that we're still. This is still the first time this. on this podcast, I think we've been doing it for maybe 50 years now, that Ben's Ben Thomas has not come to an analogy. I, I just, like, it, it is honestly incredible that at every point, you know, the government will tell us that, you know, something has been delivered. 
And then we find out that it hasn't been, that 13% of frontline workers haven't been vaccinated mm. on, on the, you know, the, the tier one vaccination program. And they can't say why, and they don't know who. And, it, like, it's honestly mind-boggling. It's a shit show. But I think we can all take comfort in knowing that at least half of the Auckland DHB board's been vaccinated, so... <laughs> <coughs> Okay, let's take. Ho- ho- let's, um, hopefully, they can cut costs by holding their meetings at the Ibis in Hamilton. <laughs> <laughs> let's um, let's do another ten minute silence. We'll fast forward through again. Okay, um, the story that broke yesterday was around some electoral donations, electoral finance uh, relating to the Māori Party and also to the National Party, which apparently been sitting on the Electoral Commission's website undetected since uh, late last week. Um, and the blogger No Right Turn um, surfaced them on social media. Anyway, the as far as the Māori Party is concerned, that has been referred to the police, Annabelle, mm-hmm. and it relates to um, $330,000 in donations. Um, 330000 I'm just trying to bring up what they... Wait, how did they break down again? It was, some was from John Timmy Hedy, who, of course, was the was co-leader. That was 150 grand. Uh, 158,000. 120,000 from Aotearoa Te Kahu, and $49,000 from the National Urban Māori Authority. Um, you had the Māori Party president, Shay Wilson, on your programme, The Hui, last night. Mm. How did he do, and, uh, and how much... How concerned are you about, A, the non-declaration, and B, I guess, the sources of those donations? Um, yeah, he fronted on the hui last night, and he did he did very well, and I think it's always good when, you know, when mm. party presidents um, front-foot these things. He said that when they realised the mistake, they referred it to the electoral office, the electoral commission themselves. He said that... Um, that you know, they it was basically a a, a um, administrative error that they that the people taking care of it didn't realise what they um, needed to do. But as president, he took full responsibility. Mm. Um, when he was asked about whether or not he was comfortable with receiving donations from NUMA, the National Urban Māori Authority. Um, given its um, status as, you know, a whānau order, mm. a, 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 a grouping of whānau order providers and all of that sort of stuff, he said that that was a question for for NUMA. So um, basically, as you say, two issues at play. One is the reporting of, you know, or, or the, the failure to report um, within the 10 working days. And the other one is the the source of these donations. And I think there's um, a few people out there scratching their heads about how an organisation like NUMA can afford to make such generous donations to to one party when essentially their core business is um, supporting vulnerable whānau. Yeah, as as a general rule, it's... (laughs) "Quote unquote," a bad look for not-for-profits who are funded by the government to fund political parties. You know, that's just a kind of baseline sort of shibboleth of politics. Um, if they are going to donate, you know, you would donate across the spectrum to parties that you know had policies or values consonant with yours. So, 
Numa may have, you know, five grand to Labour, five grand to the Māori Party, five grand to the Greens, say. This follows, you know, a few questions during the Māori Party campaign about uh, John Tamahiri, who was co-leader at the time and uh, one, and it's probably its most prominent candidate, who has, you know, ex- who, who is sort of knee-deep in all of this stuff. Um, you know, he is the... Let me try and remember. He's the chief executive of Tepo Matikana, which is the North Island Final Order Commissioning Agency. He's the chair of the Waipareta Trust, which essentially distributes most of Tepo Matikana's funding. Um, and he was in the in the Maori Party, and he was and all of these roles were. There's no. There's not a suggestion of impropriety, but there was certainly. A, perhaps a, the possibility of blurring the public perception <laughs> of which role he was in at any given point during the election. And once you start getting sort of money passing between these entities mm. that, you know, he's got an association association with, um, you know, questions will be asked and they should be asked. And that doesn't necessarily imply there was any wrongdoing. It, you know, probably was just an administrative error. At the same time, I think that, you know, there is something a little disingenuous or at least jarring about saying we're just a small amateur grassroots organization and that's why we didn't declare the three hundred thousand dollars worth of corporate funding we received. <laughs> you know. Well the you when know, you've been in Parliament since two thousand and five. Well the, I mean there's also that other grassroots organization, the National Party, which is um, hasn't been referred to the police still yet could be it after it was but was it Barfoot and Thompson New, um, New Zealand's largest bake stall collector, the National Party. <laughs> <laughs> the um the uh, they sort of the donations um, which added up over time to the threshold for donations are probably a collection of, you know, five times one hour's capital gain on a one bedroom in Avondale collected together. Brick and tile. Um, uh, so, so we, we'll wait. We'll wait to to hear more about that. Um, we're and, and normally, you'd say well, the Māori Party no 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 big problems here oh. for the party secretary because you know this sort of thing kind of tends to happen all the time. But yeah. police and the serious fraud office have been much more active, and the electoral commission have been much more sort of um, aggressive on this stuff. Probably dating back to the New Zealand First Foundation mm. allegations a couple of years ago. So. Again, it's just another example of why our election rules aren't doing what we expect them to do. They're not gold standard either. Get Aisha Varel to have a look at that. Um, we had one of the kind of jazz standards of New Zealand politics, which is leadership ructions in the National Party um, stemming uh, chiefly from a column that Claire Trevett, the outstanding uh, Herald politics writer. The respected deputy political editor. Also the respected deputy political editor. The gold standard of deputy political editors, indeed. She wrote a column uh, suggesting that there had been murmurings in the smoke-filled rooms of Wellington Hmm. of a... A spill, as we are obliged to call it now, which would involve a leadership team of one of of, of Lux and Bridges, and the idea was that Bridges would be a caretaker, which is you know um, a sort of a stretch to imagine with Lux and 
being kind of incubated like a like a good virus um, as deputy, only to explode in a in a super spreader event on the good people of New Zealand. Is that really clear? Though I feel like we instigated that. We we did. I feel like we did with did our we? Chris Luxon videos last week. Oh, I yes. feel like that we changed. might be we probably heard for the that. theme song. Yeah, and yeah. then was just Could, that's the it. future is Luxon. That's it. Yeah, <laughs> that's what happened. <laughs> it was like you know you know like be anything else. You know like when you you have the summer and you can't like even walk down the street without hearing you know party rocker anthem or whatever like outside you know from mm. cars and things mm. same with the Christopher Luxon theme mm. song you know eventually the motive the, the momentum just grows too wow. great that's incredible earworm psyops underway by <laughs> the Luxon sleeper cell Ben Thomas the it it um I mean I don't you know Duncan Garner was also kind of telling tales about what Simon Bridges had said to him off camera and all sorts of stuff this week. It's hard to suggest that it amounts to anything really, Ben, except it does show that there remains discontent and dissent and unhappiness in the National Caucus. It reminds me a lot of what happened in Labour over all those years. You know, you kind of... If, if they couldn't a, go two weeks without something tell else. Tell us about you know? your people, Ben. What's it, happening? I'm going to <laughs> National Party Insider, Annabelle Lee. <laughs> if you're a scholar of... <laughs> Dr. Seuss books, like Simon okay. Bridges's, uh, mm. worry, worry, you know, keeping them archived in your bomb-proofed basement mm. against the forces of political correctness, mm. which will try and burn them. Uh, you'd be familiar with Yertle the Turtle, which is, <laughs> <laughs> which is about a, a turtle called Yertle uh-huh. who proclaims himself king of all he can see in his pond. And then he, he clambers on top of another turtle, and then he can see further yeah. to the other side of the pond. And he's like, this is great. If I'm king of all I can see, all I need to do is you know, get more turtles underneath me. And he, he piles them up. And eventually, one poor put-upon turtle at the bottom gets sick of it and comes, you know, just leaves the pile. And then it all collapses, and Yertle is covered in, like, you know, pond weeds or whatever. Oh, um, and... That I think is it's meant to be a parable about you know do, do it you know don't get above your station um, be nice to people on the way up use mm. your power wisely but it's also a good parable about opposition in New Zealand which is that any individual has the power to destroy um, with with <laughs> if if you imagine. If, if you could analogise the National Party to mm-hmm. a bunch of turtles mm. all standing on each other's backs in a small country pond, which I think you can. You can. Um, either, you know, any, you know, Christopher Luxon could remove his, his smooth body and head from the pile and it could come <laughs> crashing down. So, so Simon Bridges' attention could be distracted by a, a wokester mm. frog on the other side of the pond and he might set off after it and the pile would again come crashing down. You know, you saw it with Jamie Lee Ross. One person has the capacity to make any kind of, you know, rumours about discontent or ructions a self-fulfilling reality. In, in, in an opposition party. Um, and, you know, I guess if you were left-wing, you'd call it accelerationist, <laughs> where you sort of say, well, the party's doing badly, so we need to change the leader. And the fact that there's now leadership rumours means the party does even worse and brings you closer to a leadership change. Um, where I think the calculus is going wrong for people like, you know, Bridges and Luxon, if we can assume that they're behind these rumours, which I think 
you know, I'm, I'm willing to go out on a limb and say they are. Um, is but you don't know. Well, I, I don't know. I don't know. No, and um, the, let's say their supporters. So their supporters, yeah. Luxon and Bridges supporters, mm. <laughs> perhaps unknown to them mm. completely. Mm. Um, you know, the, normally when you do this sort of thing, you sort of think, well, you know, I'm safe because my electorate loves me. I'll survive whatever happens. I'll emerge from the rubble. Um, I don't know that any National Party MPs can be guaranteed of that. You know, we saw at the last election, nobody's safe. <laughs> they're, they're, they're all near extinction right now if they don't sort of get their acts together. Um, I think we all need a moment to just kind of breathe that in. That was great. That was a lot. Um, that, was, that was awesome. Thanks, Ben. Now the Lorax one. Which is <laughs> <laughs> we'll just go to another 10-minute silence. Um, before we go, let's talk. Uh, how about 10-minute silence for free speech, Toby? Let's do that. Well, let's do 20. <sighs> the... Week began with a was it what was it an open letter a petition open you know thing, letter. open letter love an open letter don't you yeah Annabelle, that's what gets you out of bed in the morning mm-hmm. and it was uh, from a range of groups including Just Speak the uh, Helen Clark Foundation Helen Clark Foundation Ben's favourite um, uh, the doctors one the doctors one. Was so it the Health Professionals Association? Oh, there's heaps. Um, but, but they were interesting because they had been a bit um, equivocal and weird in the lead-up to the cannabis referendum. What I'm talking about is a... like Jacinda. Cool. She did not sign the letter. They called for <laughs> her, for reform to the Misuse of Drugs Act. Um, and uh, it was met with a response from Andrew Little, who's not the Minister of Justice anymore. But he's the Minister of Health. But he's the Minister of Health. If you want to make drugs a health matter rather than a criminal matter, you're talking to the Minister of Health, which happens to be Andrew Little. <laughs> and he repeated kind of a position that he had uh, intimated after the referendum had been completed, which was kind of, you know... Wait, can I sum it up? Yeah, go on. Yeah, yeah, nah. His was position basically was, his yeah, position. Yeah, nah. His position yeah, was yeah, that nah. the people had uh, indicated that it wasn't the time to do anything really at all. Otherwise, the position from these groups and um, a large number of those people is that it, you know, it was, it was, it was, it was a cigarette papers difference, um, uh, and so decriminalisation is on the table. There are still things in the Misuse of Drugs Act that seem pretty anachronistic. It's a weird kind of. You know, when, when was the when does it date from the sixties, seventies, seventies? A long time ago, a long time ago, and uh, has had bits and pieces cobbled upon it into the state that it could do with the form. Um, Annabelle, what did you make of all of that brouhaha? I thought it was a real cop out um, to reference the referendum and say that that was a reason why change couldn't be made. It was fifty. of people, it's hardly an overwhelming mandate not to change. Um, You could argue that that essentially the neutrality of it is a mandate to make change, but there's other options. It doesn't have to be um, legalisation, like you say. It could be um, decriminalisation and to not do so. Um, while at the same time you have um, one of the members of your party exemplifying 
Chardonnay socialism at its worst with his private member's bill to make alcohol available on public holidays while Rome burns is really disappointing. Well, I'm in favour. Dr. Seuss? I'm in favour of the alcohol available every day bill. Um, Shout out to Karen McNulty. (laughs) Look, personally, I'm in favour of drug legalisation, pretty much all of it. At the same time, I can't help but feel the pro-legalisation, pro-decriminalisation voices are sort of being sore losers here. Um, You can talk about the paper-thin majority. You can talk about it was 50-50. The referendum lost. But it wasn't wasn't an endorsement of the status quo, was it? But the thing is that not all legislation is created by referendum and... No, it's, Regardless it's, it's not. But, of, there, but, but there was a referendum. There's people that are going to jail unnecessarily. Yeah, whose that, lives that's are right. being it's, wasted. Yeah, who, a, who are not getting a health response to their addiction issues, but getting chucked in the slammer. Like, how can that be good for our country? Well, it, it's probably not good for the country, as per my so personal So it's not beliefs. really about sore but losers. It's it, about justice it, and it, an appropriate response to a, to a significant health issue. Yeah, but there seem to be a lot of people saying just ignore the referendum or the referendum is actually a vote for change. It's not. The referendum lost. I mean, I think people have to be a bit realistic about that. You know, it is, it was, we're still in a democracy for whatever reasons. That was the vehicle for it's reform. It's hardly an forward. overwhelming mandate, Ben. It's 50, it, and the other thing is... Sometimes you've got to make hard decisions and just because it's not the most popular thing in the moment doesn't mean that it's not the right decision to make. And 50.7%, it's literally a knife edge. And most of those people, the the polls that they've done since show that they would actually support decriminalisation. So why would you not act? Take another well, 10 minutes. According, according oh, no, to no, Prime no. Minister Jacinda Ardern uh, at her press conference, uh, the National Party really needs to sort out its position on this because progress may be impossible <laughs> until their 25% of the vote <laughs> starts to support uh, legalisation. So, uh, look, the... There, there will be reasons that they're not pursuing it, whether it's focus grouping or whatever. And, look, it's a shame, but... It's a cop-out. We're going to wrap it up. A big thank you to Jonathan for producing us, and uh, thank you very much to Spinoff members for being the greatest. Join if you're not already. And we, uh, we're going to go out with a, a, a shout-out to Kiritapu Allen. Yeah. Kia peki te ora, Kiritapu. Kia ora e te iwi, te Butler here, podcast manager at The Spinoff. If you enjoy listening to our podcasts, consider supporting our mahi by signing up to become a Spinoff member at thespinoff.co.nz slash donate. The Spinoff Podcast Network.